0: listening to
1: Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you people, uh, so I went and got my tux this weekend for the big day and I wasn't sure where I'm gonna go. You know, I I, mean, I don't have a choice in what I'm getting because Joanne wanted a dark blue tux that's sort of like a suit. But I, I was gonna go to Men's Warehouse but I went in there once and I just didn't, get, I didn't like the vibe of it. So I got to this other place and I just, it was these older guys and they seemed okay, but it didn't have that feel. And you know, and I, plus they were, it's a smaller store and I like to support small businesses. So I'm driving back from there and I see this little place in a little strip shopping center. So I go in and the guy was a really nice guy and he reminded me of Maury from Maury's wig shop in Goodfellas. So he sat there and I talked to him. I said, well, you know, I have to bring back my fiance. And he basically told me I get $20 off if I go online to get a coupon, so of course I'm gonna do that. So we go back and we decided to get the tux. But what's funny is he kept trying to be funny and he was really annoying me. And I didn't say anything. And at the end, I tried to be funny and he didn't get my joke because he said, can I get you anything else? And I said, well, where do you have the top hats? And I said, with a straight face, and it like pissed him off. He's like, we don't show them. I'm like, dude, I'm joking. So anyway... We're getting married uh, We're getting married in September, so we have our tuxes and we're all good. And uh, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who has, you know, he has, I believe it's six Emmys. I'm excited when I have a person, a guest on with one Emmy. He's got six. He's, <laughs> he's written for some of the most iconic TV shows. And I found out he went to high school in Painesville, which I have a story about Painesville. And my guest is Dan O'Shannon. How you doing, Dan? Good, good, good to,
0: good to talk to you. I can't wait to hear the Painesville story.
1: Well, the Painesville story is years ago I did stand-up comedy. And it was probably back in 1990 or 91, and I was co-headlining a show there at a place called Mad Hatter's Comedy Club, and it was this theater. And it was the 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 owner put us up like in a not even a hotel, like a house that her son also lived in. And it was just so gross that house. And I just remember that one night on stage, when I was closing the show, the mic went out. And then another night, the other night. This, we were switching back and forth, me and this other guy closing, and I had to follow him one night, and it was this old guy, and he he put, like, a fake birthmark in his head and did a Gorbachev impression, and the crowd went nuts. That was my dad. <laughs>
0: okay. uh, uh, wow, wow. You know what? I, I have had many experiences like that uh, on the I did stand-up in the early 80s, and I remember... Uh, the first night, I, I was my 21st i have been doing it since I was 19. My 21st birthday, I was a little place in Erie. And this is how long ago this was. I uh, I went up on stage. I did okay, but not great. And, um, and you know, I was very hit and miss. So when I hit, I really hit. When I missed, I missed. And uh, the guy after me, he was a local, so let me show you how it's done. And, yeah, but in a nice way, he tried to be nice, although I felt it was insulting. <laughs> and he went on stage, grabbed his groin
1: and said, hey, where's the beef? And the place went nuts. I, I got to ask you something. And but Real quick. That was it was the
0: first night I drank ever. Okay. Oh anyway, my... Go
1: ahead. Was that place called the Split Rook? Do you remember? Uh,
0: no, this is a place called, it's called, it was called the Riviera, which is in Erie. It was like in Erie. <laughs> and it was like uh, uh, this like just beat up kind of like, a, a, you know, water damaged place. I just love the fancy name for it. The Riviera. Uh, Riviera the Riviera Supper Club. That's what it was. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you're not gonna, I, I was only there one night in my life, and it was decades ago, and I remember
1: it quite well. Well, I remember because I played in Erie at a place called the Split Rock. The Split Rock was a bar that they had banned, so the audience is like 25 feet away from you. Like there's like a gap where the dance floor is. Oh. And it was so yeah, yeah. crazy because they, the week before I did uh, Trump's Castle, he had a comedy club, and I did that in Atlantic uh-huh. City. And so I stayed in the hotel. It was very nice. When I got to Erie, they put us up in a converted railroad tracks, like cars that were like a trailer park. And it was like, welcome to show business. You know, I
0: remember when I was doing it, it was the first sort of big comedy boom uh, or stand-up comics were all over the place in the early 80s, and, uh, and everything was opening a comedy night. So you would have, not only would you have comedy clubs, but then you had bars that had usually music, and they would have a comedy night, or a tire store would have comedy nights. It's like a photo <laughs> map, comedy night. And, and just any place you get a get yeah, it's cheap, you get a microphone, and some idiot that stand there saying jokes or whatever. Uh, but it, it was, uh, there were places where, you know, these owners were constantly going out of business. And they would want to pay you either in alcohol or drugs. And I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs or, or alcohol, so they'd offer me like 600 free songs on the jukebox. You know, they were just desperate. And I, I ended up in Erie. Uh, they couldn't pay me at the end of the week, and I had to borrow money for bus fare to get back to Spain. <laughs>
1: well, I know there's. you probably worked for a guy named Keith Gisser. I don't know if you worked for him.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, yes, I sure do remember. I remember Keith. I, I bet my funnest memory of Keith, and I knew him from when he was just first starting out, Um, is that he you know his wife his wife did stand up as well and he taught her everything he knew uh, and um, and she would go on stage and and, you know she's not uh, great she was not born to do it let's say and the two of them uh, would open up clubs and they would they would go around opening up comedy he would open up comedy he would talk everybody in the world a Dairy Queen into having a comedy night and then he would book his wife in it and then they would close you know because I I don't know the comedy night but the entire Dairy Queen would close after that I'm so bad and um and there was a club that they opened, and I went there to watch because I heard he was in town. I was visiting Ohio, and I, I went, and there were, and he was, he was in a hotel, and I go into the showroom, and there's like 12 chairs in the whole place because he's having a feud with the person who owns the hotel as to who's supposed to furnish the chairs, and he won't back down. So it's a Friday <laughs> night show, and he's got uh, like a dozen chairs, uh, which was fine because only six people showed up, but he still decided to have the show, and so he puts his wife on to do her monologue. Meanwhile, the two of them have had a, a child, a toddler. I don't remember his name. I'll say Jimmy, because why not? And so she's on the stage doing her act for, like, six really uncomfortable people while this kid is running around, and she's parenting while she's doing her horrible stand-up. <laughs> so it was like, you know, so that airline food, You know, I mean, what did they make? Timmy, Timmy, sit down. Timmy, Timmy, mommy's working right now. Timmy, Timmy, put it, put it down. Put it down. Okay, yeah. So, you know, this airline food, you eat it, and it's kind of like, I don't even know how to get off the ground with this stuff. What was the tundra, Timmy, what did I just say? You know, and I, oh my God, it was the funniest night ever for me, well, for we, nobody else.
1: We loved Gisser because we would say he would do the uh, consolation tour because he would have you, like, in one town. And then you would drive like four and a half hours to another town. And then you'd come back the next night to a town that was 20 minutes from the first town. And we said, whenever <laughs> yes, you, yes, if, yes. if you put your <laughs> points together, it would look like a consolation. It's like, oh, I'm doing Orion this week.
0: Oh, that's so funny. That's hilarious. Now, that was, that, he hustled. I mean, he hustled because places would close down after. Because he would book people in there that weren't like pulling crowds. And also, a lot of places just weren't meant to have comedy. But he would hustle, so in the time it took for one club to close down, he would have opened up two more. So he was he was really ambitious that way.
1: So what, what got you into the world of stand-up comedy? Were you a funny kid? Did you love TV? I know you're a very accomplished TV writer. I didn't know you started off doing stand-up. But what brought you into the world of stand-up?
0: Well, I, uh, I there was actually a definitive moment in my life. I, some people, they, you know, they, they go their whole lives without knowing what they want to do, and I... I was either lucky enough or cursed enough to know at a young age. I was like eight years old, and uh, I was at a school assembly, and uh, there was a guy on stage, like in our gym, and he was being really funny, and we were all laughing our heads off. And at one point he said, uh, he said, there's nothing like the feeling of making people laugh. It was just a little throwaway thing he said as he was enjoying the fact that we were all laughing. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, you could be that person. Any one of us could be that person that's up in front of a whole bunch of people and just making a whole room full of people Laugh and and maybe even make the world laugh just by things you thought of, and uh, that was a big revelation to me. and I remember thinking, uh, starting tomorrow I'm funny, <laughs> and uh, the next day waking up going, well, starting today I'm funny. And now I had I was not born funny. I was not one of those magical kids who just had a charisma and a confidence and knew what to do. I was uh, I I had to start from zero, and I imitated things on television I thought were funny, and I you know, funny voices are falling down or you know whatever what path for with as an eight year old. And um, I was not funny at all. And I was, I spent many years trying desperately to, I was that kid in class who was always trying to be funny, but was really just loud and it looked like I was trying to get <laughs> attention all the time, which I guess I was. And, um, but I, I was voracious. I read everything. I knew a mad magazine, all the comic strips and then funny essays as I got older. And then, uh, you know, I was watching all the cartoons on TV and all the sitcoms and all the old comedy movies and really kind of building an encyclopedia in my head. And, uh, by the time I was about 17 or 18, I started to become what I might call reliably funny. And then, uh, at uh, 18, I went on stage. That's when the comedy boom started and there was a club in Cleveland and you just had to sign up and do 10 minutes. And, uh, I did it. And that's when I would say like the real formal education, that was like my college because I dropped out of college to do it. I was in college for like six months. And I just dropped out. And that's when I really started the learning was, was the, it was a lab work was being in front of an audience every night, you know, and, uh. And that's that's what did it. It I was always driven, and then I I sort of I I was kind of figuring along the way that I had more of a knack for writing the stuff. I was fine at delivering it. I had a good stage presence, but I I knew pretty early on I would be a good comic. I could be a working comic, but I was never going to be one of the big comics. You know, so I I was I was at least lucky enough to have a good sense of self assessment that way.
1: So you, you feel like you're not going to be, uh, you know, as I said, a star. And, you know, it, it is true. You know, if there's a lot of us, and I was a good working comic, but I just got tired of being on the road because, like I said, you, you play a good gig and then you play a Keith Gisser week. And now, <laughs> so when do you sit there and decide that you're going to start writing and do you go straight to L.A.? How did that happen?
0: Well, I, I, the thing is, I, back then, this was before the Internet, so it's not like you could go somewhere and Google how do you become a comedy writer. And, uh, there was no, no one had computers at all. And so I, I would just ask comics who would come through, I started writing jokes for comics that would come through town, like Bruce Baum or whoever. And, um, and, but I would always ask, you know, how to get into TV writing. No one seemed to really know. And, um but I, the only way for me to ever find out was to literally go to New York or Los Angeles and I knew the TV was coming out of Los Angeles but I would tell people in Ohio I want to write for TV and, and most of them had sort of no idea that there were writers for TV I mean people are a lot more savvy about show business than they were in the early 80s I mean television and movies that was just magic stuff that came from Hollywood and, and I remember I had, there was this girl I was dating and I said I want to go to Los Angeles and maybe write for Johnny Carson and she said uh, so what do you mean write for Johnny Carson? And I said, well, you know, I'd like write his jokes. I'd write his jokes for him. And, and she thought about it. She said, oh, you mean like when he makes jokes, you would take them down like a stenographer? And I'm like, no, I would write them before he says them. Well, how do you know what he's going to say? I mean, it was just crazy. It was like a, it was insane, but no one knew. And they thought I was nuts. My parents thought it was absolutely crazy. But there was no way to know unless I went. So I, I knew a guy, a nice guy who uh, from open mic nights. He said he was going to Los Angeles, and if I wanted, I could sleep on his couch if I ever went out there. And I kept his number. And, um... Uh, I, at one point, finally, I'd had enough of, of not knowing what to do and people saying, you can't do it, you can't do it. And I, I had 100 bucks in my pocket and a one-way ticket to Los Angeles, and I left a note on my kitchen table because my father was absolutely dead set against it. And I went to Los Angeles. And uh, there
1: you go. So you get to Los Angeles. Now, where do you go from there? Because as you said, you're right, there wasn't the Internet. And that's the funny thing. I always think about going back to the comedy days when you know you were had to get directions i mean i had a membership to triple a just so they would map stuff out it's not like now oh, yeah you, just... you get
0: a trip you yes absolutely yeah, and now sure. it's like you'd be in phone booth trying to like a yeah, in phone booth trying to set up dates and stuff it was crazy you have to mail your your eight by ten to them in advance and all that oh,
1: and your cassette um, <laughs> uh
0: so i when i came out here i um uh, just to make my I, I, I got a job at the uh, uh, at a movie theater a full-time job at a movie theater out here. I don't know if you remember the movie Fast Times Ridgemont High but there was a mall there uh, in that movie and it was at that mall. So it's sort of like Hollywood but uh, I was uh, working at that movie theater and at night I would do clubs out here and I had only done the Midwest by, at that point I had done I'd done it for like two or three years so by that time I had a pretty good act and, and I would go to uh, I learned that if you were in a, a city like New York or Los Angeles and you wanted to do stand-up, the money is not, was not the same, you know, because if you wouldn't do a gig for $10, there was a line of 50 people outside the door who would do it for $5, you know, so there was no real money for me to be made as opposed to the Midwest where you book a week and you get a few hundred bucks and you'd be fine, but, uh, so I would go to open mic night out here pretending I'd never been on stage before for the cash prize, so I'd get 50 bucks here <laughs> and 75 bucks there or whatever. Um, and I met a comedian, uh, a, a woman named Karen Haber, and she told she introduced me to a writer named Mark Sokin, who was writing for uh, Charles in Charge, who's was the first TV writer I ever met, and he told me how you write a spec script or a sample script, you pick a TV show that you like, and you write an episode of it, and then you get that to agents and stuff. I, I mean, it's not like an episode they're going to produce, you write it as a sample, like this. I was going to write an episode of, let's say, Cheers was big at the time. This is what it would be. This is what the script would be like. And you'd get it to agents, and agents would go, wow, you really caught the voices. You told a good story. There's funny jokes. I'll, I'll show this to other showrunners, and maybe someone will hire you. And that's kind of how it works. And <clears throat> so I took a bus into Hollywood, and for $5 I bought a, uh, a script. They sold souvenir scripts to tourists, and I bought an episode of Tears, actually. This was 1984. And I uh, studied the thing from front to back. I'd never seen a script before. And I borrowed a manual typewriter on which the space key did not always work. So after every word, I had to manually advance the carriage. And I tapped out my first spec script, uh, an episode of Tears. And I remember holding script pages to, against the window and putting my typing paper over that so the light would shine through and I could mark where the margins had because I wanted it to look really professional. And again, no computer programs to tell you where to put the margins and stuff. So I tapped out my script uh, uh, and Mark Shotkin told me what I did right, what I did wrong. I typed it again, and I typed another script, and then he showed his boss. Yeah, so lucky. My timing was just right, and it was just the right time for me. So, um, that's how it happened. What was the first
1: staff job you had?
0: It was on a TV show called It's a Living. It was a syndicated show, and it actually started in the late 70s and went away for a while, and then they brought it in, uh, brought it back in, I think, 85. Yeah, that's when I was on. 85 as a first-run syndicated show. It had Anne Jillian in it, and it started, it was about a bunch of, uh, uh, waitresses at this high-end restaurant at the top of a building in Los Angeles, and that was my first staff job. And I was there for a year, and then, uh, and then this show, and that show, and that show, and this show, and uh, teamed up for a while with another writer from Cleveland uh, named Tom Anderson. He and, and I were a writing team for about four years, and then, uh, then we each sort of began writing uh, separately again, um, and uh, from there to here.
1: Now. You get that first job, and you must be a little bit overwhelmed because you're in a writing room, and you know it's a different world. Yeah. And so you yeah, go through that. Terrifying. Now, now, how do you go from there to Newhart? And were you intimidated because you know, especially if you did stand up, Newhart's a legend. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, well, Newhart came along. I'd done a few shows before I got to Newhart, and um, I. Uh, you know, as you're doing these different shows, you meet other writers and you form relationships with them and they, they, they get a sense of what your writing is like and I was able to freelance an episode of, of Newhart and then uh, right around that time is when I teamed up with my friend Tom and the two of us were now a team so what was good about that is that uh, the writers, the writing teams are often paid the salary of one writer and so so to hire me, Newhart got two writers for one salary so it, it sort of made it easier for us to get in then as a team but um I was very intimidated by Bob Newhart because he was a button-down mind. I listened to his records when I was a kid until the grooves were I could memorize. I could do the bits for him if I wanted. And the truth is, I didn't speak to him the entire year until the last day of the show, until the last day of the, of the season. And I introduced myself. And I'd seen him every day at rehearsals. And I would just sit in the back. And, and I wrote a lot of stuff for him. I wrote like six episodes with Tom and, uh, and rewrote a lot of other stuff. And uh, but but didn't have the nerve to introduce uh, ourselves to him until uh, our last day, and he was really nice. And then there was the whole thing with the the, the finale of the show because that was there was a, a bit of a misunderstanding with that. Uh, that I don't know, it's a bit of a story. I don't know if worth telling <laughs> um But uh, you know, he, he, I I came up with the idea that uh, Bobby Hart wakes up with his amplifier from the first series. And I came in, I told the writers, the writers said, yes, let's do it. And then we did it. And then Bob Newhart said that his wife thought of it. And so, uh, and, and <laughs> I believe that his wife had thought of it at some point. I really do. And told him. And then that was it. And then I came in separately with the idea. And then we did the idea. Because the wrap party, Bob Newhart went to the executive producers and said, that's kind my wife thought of it? You know, are like, what are you talking about? And then he came up to them again at the end of the wrap party and said, I said my wife thought of it, right? And they said, yeah. They came in a few hours earlier. Next night, he's on Carson saying, well, my, it's my wife's idea. So now that's spread around That comment, kind of, you know, the, the legend that the Bob Newhart's wife thought of the final episode of Newhart, but it was me. It was me as, was me as well.
1: Right. Sort of <laughs> so now, you know, you're, you're on Newhart. It's a great ending. Everyone's talking about it. Did that make you it easier for you to transition to Cheers? Because I believe you got the Cheers in like the eighth or ninth season.
0: Yeah, uh, Tom and I uh, were still a team then. We went to, from New Heart to Cheers, and it was the seventh season of Cheers, the state we did, they did 11, so I could backtrack eleven, ten, 11, 10, 9, 8. Was, uh, we, here's what happened. <laughs> um, it was the... Uh, we were at New It was the second to last season at that time. Tom and I were on the staff, and we got offered the chance to freelance an episode of Cheers. And we loved Cheers, obviously. We loved New but we also loved Cheers. And we went to our bosses at New and said, We just got this once-in-a-lifetime chance to do an episode of of Cheers, and we would love to do it. Is there any way we could make it work? We'll do it on our own time. You'll never know that we took one second away from New Heart. And they finally said, all right, look, we'll let you write an episode of Cheers. It's a promise of something. If Cheers offers you a staff job, you're not going to go over there. And we're like, "No, no way, are you kidding? We wouldn't do that. And New Heart all the way, yeah, yeah, New Heart, that's us, come on. New Heart through and through. And so we freelanced an episode of Cheers and they offered us of staff and we took it in a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so we went over there and it uh, was so like, a, uh, I remember it was like a cut and pay and for a little, a couple days we were like, should we do it? And it was like, no, always take the better show. And, and not that it was like a better show, but we'd already done New Heart and, it, and we both had just idolized Cheers and we were there for four years.
1: Now, what's it like walking into a show like Cheers because you're a big fan. Your hell your first spec script was by, was about was Cheers. It's an uh, iconic show at that point already. I mean it's already, you know, it's it's it was one of the most popular shows and now you're walking in to a writers room was now was that in the time that they were transitioning a little bit in the writers room because I know I don't know, was Pete Sutton still on the show then and was Rob Long still on the show. Uh Rob Long hadn't started yet. Rob Long came after me
0: and Bob. I was Rob's boss. Don't let him tell you anything differently. Steve <laughs> <laughs> um, Sutton was still on the show, um, and he would be for another two or three years while we were there. Um, but um, yeah, it was—you know—here's the lucky thing regarding that: is that I had Tom, so we were a team. So it would have been a lot more terrifying if it had just been me by myself walking into this room of like Emmy-winning writers. Uh, I mean, we had some classic writers from *Mash* and Mary Tyler Moore, and you know, people who had done TV that I just worshipped and fortunately I had Tom there so we could kind of like you know joke each other's nerves away a little bit and uh, and and that helped a lot but it is it is terrifying now when Tom and I teamed up in order to have ourselves taken seriously as a team I mean you don't just call Hollywood and say hey I'm part of a team now the two of us had to write a spec script that represented what we could do and we wrote an episode of Cheers which had a Cliff on Jeopardy and so um, so we once we were on staff at Cheers, at some point, I think our second year, maybe the first, someone said, hey, what was that spec script you guys wrote? And they looked at it again, and they said, let's do, let's do this episode. Let's make a few changes, and we'll blah, 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 blah. So we ended up doing an episode where Cliff was on Jeopardy, and then the B story that we had in our, our spec script became a different episode. So not only did we get our spec script done at Cheers, we actually had both stories turned into two episodes at Cheers. So we were quite pleased with ourselves about that. But, but you know, sometimes like... A, But in Santa Barbara, they do this thing where they'll have like a writer's weekend and they have different writers go up and they teach. They'll do like a 90-minute seminar on some aspect of writing or getting into show business in some way. And and you can pick your own topic. And I noticed that all of them were about how to get into the writer's room and what you do, how you write that script, how you get the agent, how you blah, 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 how you construct a story. But there was nothing about what you do once you get in the writer's room. Because there is a certain way to act and not act in a writer's room. And there are pitfalls that people fall into, and they can screw their own careers by making dumb mistakes. And so, you know, I taught, like, you're in the writer's room, so now what? You know, and dealing with that first few weeks, that first year of being in there. And uh, it is a scary place, and you sink or swim. So uh, I was very, very lucky enough that uh, Tom and I were able to swim.
1: Now you won an Emmy with Cheers. Uh, what was that like? Mm-hmm. What I mean was that just something that you never even fathomed when you moved to Hollywood.
0: Oh gosh, I no, I I never it it never occurred to me that I would get an Emmy. And also, I you know, and to be fair, it wasn't an Emmy for an episode I wrote. It was an Emmy as one of the writer or producers of that that season's worth of shows. And there was a lot of my writing in there, so yeah, I I get a part of that. So. Um, uh, but I remember they, they called our names and we were walking up on stage and I remember kind of thinking, and this was still a big deal back then when, wow, we're on national television. And, and it felt like a, I, I thought my parents are watching this, you know, and uh, Tom, Tom and I both talked about it afterwards and we both were thinking about the people back home, you know, the people in Lake County, Ohio. And, um, and, and, and to me, this was a big sense of kind of vindication. It's like, aha, uh-huh, you know, yeah, I wasn't funny, but I can do it. And, uh, um, but it was, it was unreal <clears throat> and it was, it was really just one of the best nights. I remember like riding there in a limousine that the, that the studio provided and you're there and your tux and they call your name. And Carol Burnett handed me the Emmy and, me, and uh, or she um, announced the category. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> it was quite a night. I, I, I don't know that many things have ever topped that actually.
1: Now you win it for Cheers. Now you're on Cheers. And you, when do you know Cheers is coming to an end? Um, sometime during
0: at the beginning of what became the final season of the show um, we heard that Ted was getting a little he was ready to kind of wrap it up and, and, and the truth was I, I think he was kind of right I think we at that point we had taken uh, you know uh, Sam about as far as we could take him we really didn't know what to give him that was new we had a couple ideas but, but nothing that was really exciting everybody and um, you know the, uh, Kirstie Alley's character we, she, we were sort of floundering a little bit with her too uh, I think we were, um, uh, I think it was time for the show to be done. And, um, so we knew, I guess about a third of the way through the final season. So that gave us
1: time to kind of gear up for an ending. Now, is it, was it hard for you to gear up for an ending? Cause as you said, you know, you came in later in the series, uh, series, and it went for 11 years, but you're you're wrapping something up. And now, you know, there's so much pressure on the last episode. There's always been like that. And coming from Newhart, where the last episode was talked about, did you feel certain pressure about, you You know, this has to be a spectacular episode?
0: Well, I did not, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because the, the Charles brothers, uh, Glenn and Les Charles, who created the show with Jimmy Burroughs, the director, uh, came in to oversee the last six episodes. And they had a couple people from past... Uh, seasons come and write episodes as kind of a victory lap which I thought was great and um, they had some really terrific episodes too and they were the ones who designed and wrote the final episode you know we all helped with the rewriting and pitching in on it and stuff but uh, um, it was their baby and because it was their show and it was right for them to come and find the ending for it that worked for them they were in a bind I think which we didn't have it was not a problem for Newhart or like a lot of other shows like Seinfeld or whatever uh, because it was bringing Diane back, and there, because there was a big will they or won't they, no matter what ending you choose, you're going to disappoint half the audience. So they were at a bit of a no-win situation, which I think is easy to understand in retrospect. I think during the time, I don't think we thought about that, but uh, but not everyone was ever going to love the end of Cheers. We also, for a while, it was going to be an hour-long episode, and uh, I remember in rehearsals, we had it down to an hour. It was a Friday rehearsal, and I thought, wow, this is really, really good. I think, I think we just got this. And then over the weekend... The Charles brothers kept sort of adding things, and they brought in another writer, Jerry Belson, to kind of add some stuff, and, and it was kind of fun because it was saying goodbye to these characters, and, it's, and you don't really want them to leave, so you want to spend a little extra time with all of them. So by the time Monday came, the show was now an hour and a half long, which NBC was crazy about. They loved that. But I always felt, looking at it, I, I only watched it the night that it aired. I never watched it after that. Um, and I was also there the night we shot it. But I always felt that it was perfect as an hour... And it was nice, but less perfect as an hour and a half, to me. I mean, other people might feel very differently about it.
1: Now, Cheers is done. And now, I know, did you create The Boys? Was that your first chance creating a show? Oh, my gosh. Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah. I wrote that uh, toward the end of Cheers, and I wrote it to see if I could write a pilot, and uh, yeah, that's a thing that came and went, I think it would bore every listener you have, (laughs) but it was a a fun experiment, it was probably just six episodes in the middle of summer Uh, we actually, and this is is TV for you Uh, the pilot starred a guy named Anthony Edwards who, uh, we searched all over for the lead guy, and when we found Anthony, it was like, this is the guy, this is terrific, and he was great, and then it was at CBS and the head of CBS said, we love this pilot, we'll pick up six episodes and do it in the summer, Uh, but get rid of Anthony Edwards, the guy is not a TV star and I did my fighting, and I did my fighting, and finally I let him go, and I got another actor who CBS had had to, under a deal, and he was a good actor. He just wasn't the right actor for this particular piece. And uh, a month later, uh, Anthony Edwards was signed to do ER and became a big TV star. You know, And uh, you know, I, I think what happens is that the network, when they do something like that to you, when they are so blind or they are absolutely wrong and they just not trust your judgment, they should basically give you like a chip. And then the next time you get in an argument, you should put that chip down and say, no, no, you owe me one. But it doesn't work like that. They all go, well, yeah, I guess we were wrong on that one. But then they'll fight just as hard to make the wrong decision next time. Yeah. You know, they're always convinced they know what's what. And it's just uh, the, the, the amount of uh, uh, belief in, every, in everything they, they say is just always astonishing to me. As TV sinks down the tubes, at least in the networks, the, their their complacency is always amazing.
1: When you were writing some good shows, you also ended up on Suddenly Susan, which was a very underrated show, I think. It was, it was a funny, solid show and I had a good cast. How long did you stay at that job?
0: Uh, I was there full-time for a year, and then um, I wasn't running it or anything. I was just on the staff, which is a fun position to just consult and just be there and pitch stuff and then go home at the end of the day. So I was there for the first year. Then during the second year, I was there for a couple of days a week. And then like, toward the end of the second year, I, I got sort of lazy and I stopped going in. And eventually they caught me. <laughs> um, but uh, um, So I was there for that long. It was, it was fun. Everyone was, it was one of those shows where everyone was just uh, really fun to work with. And I, I met some terrific writers um, on, on that show, people I'm still friends with today. I, that's, that's the good thing about it is when you're starting off, you work on a show – And you're in a room with these writers, and you're in the room with these people every day, and you get to know each other, and you're all kind of digging through your personal lives for story ideas, and you're walking in with stuff from your home life and from your childhood, and you get really, really close to the writers, and they all know what you're going through at home, and they all know stuff about you that your families don't know, and then the end of the season comes, or the end of the series. And you have to say goodbye to these people. And the first few times, it's like, how am I going to live without this group of people? You know, this was my summer camp, you know, in a way. And, and then you leave, and you have lunches with them and stuff like that. But but then you're on another staff, and eventually they become that group for you. And then that shows. I've been on 20 staffs now, maybe a little more, actually. And, and so I'm used to the idea that you get really, really close, and then, you know, you keep in touch with people, and you have your occasional lunches. You bring maybe one, maybe two people from each staff with you throughout your life, but um, it's a very disorienting thing, so young writers, when <laughs> I see a young writer at the end of a, of a season, looking bereft, I always kind of chuckle, because I know what they're feeling, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I've been very, very lucky, I've worked with some amazing people, just people I so respect, Ugh, I've been
1: so lucky. Now, you also wrote, you wrote for Frasier, was that because from your Cheers connection, did they get you in, and what was it like writing for that show, because once again, that's one show that was, I mean, I started watching like reruns of Two in the morning if I wake up because I you know or you know they're on different channels and it's so well written and you know just how did that job come about because you know the Charles?
0: Uh, no, uh, you know that, that show was created by with the Charles brothers blessing. That was created by uh, Peter Casey, David Lee, and David Angel. Uh, the, they created Wings and they had run Cheers for a while before I got there. And um, I, Fraser was the guy to to do a spin-off with. I mean, uh, he was just such a great. A, a brilliantly acted character But also a brilliantly conceived character And and they were uh, And the guys who created it Were very smart to create an entire new tone For that show And not just mimic the show that Frazier came from And uh, the show had been on for Six years before I was interviewed for it early on But I was doing something else So I ended up choosing something else um, And I came in In the seventh season After I'd done a few other things And uh, I only I I actually don't think I knew anyone on the I knew I knew a consultant, one of the consulting writers, David Lloyd, whom I probably put in a good word for me. But um, uh, I didn't really know anyone on the staff when I went there. And I was actually a little nervous walking in because Frasier had such a reputation as this kind of austere, kind of pristine, terrific show. And I thought, oh, I'm going to walk in and ruin it. Uh, but uh, I went in I had a nice time I got to be good friends With Chris Lloyd Who was running the show At the time And Chris Lloyd is like You know Chris Lloyd and Joe Keenan Are the guys that really In my mind You know Aside from the fact That it was brilliantly created They shepherded this thing Through all its Emmy winning years And they really just uh, They just gave us a gift With that show And and For whatever reason they, they let me drive it around For a while So um, So I was there for a year With Chris and Joe And then I took over For a while And Um and uh, it was an amazing cast. It was an amazing opportunity. And again, just writers, I to
1: this day just uh, crazy up. Now, what was it like writing for David Hyde Pierce? Because he's such an amazing physical comic—not in like a slapsticking way, but his—he when you watch just his gestures and his posture, it's just so. I mean, it's it's just amazing. Did you write with his that talent in mind, or did you? Was that something that he would somewhat improv? Because it's not on the script.
0: Well, I think uh, I think I think it's both, actually, because I think you when you when you're writing characters and when you've been doing it for a while, you really get the character's voice in your head. Now, the actor will always come along, uh, not always, but the actors, good actors, will often come along, and even though you have their voice in your head. They will give you some new twists or they will give you some little bits of business or they're on stage and Jimmy Burroughs is directing and says, hey, you know what, Dave, let's do this, you know, wipe down the stool before you sit on it. Show them this is this is who this character is. So stuff like that, you go to the run through and you see the stuff they've sort of added to it, little bits of business. And you go, well, sometimes you go, well, that sort of goes against another thing that we want to do later. So maybe we don't do that or whatever Uh, or that's leaning into it a little bit too much. But and also on the set, we'll be pitching out ideas. You know, we'll be saying, "Hey, what if you what if you said this while you were on the exit?" You know, and that'll change the way the laugh is and stuff like that. Uh, But it it was very collaborative. And what was terrific, this came from Cheers, and this is something Kelsey learned at Cheers and brought with him to Frasier, is that you is a a a healthy respect for and trust of the writers. You know, Uh, and yeah, sometimes we would turn in scripts that would just bomb, but they trusted that we'd fix it. You know, and we would eventually, hopefully, fix it. Now we had episodes that just didn't work. I mean, there's 250-some-odd episodes of Frasier out there, and there are some episodes that just, just just, don't work, and some of those are mine, I'm afraid. But there are episodes where we knocked it out of the park, and some of those are mine, I'm happy to say. But uh, but there was always a professional courtesy and a trust that I, I, I just love on a show like that. And uh, yeah, right for David and for all of them, you know, they would just always surprise you with stuff and then you would try to work that into something in the future, you know, so, so we all we all kept feeding the character, you know, so it was, it, was, it was an amazing experience.
1: So you're writing in all these great shows and they're all comedies. And then you end up on Jericho in your career. How, what was what was did you want to go to a drama or how did that happen?
0: Well, I, I did, uh, I did a little bit of, I've I done a couple of disparate things. Between Cheers and Frazier. I wrote an animated short, uh, I wrote, a, um, a story for a Star Trek Enterprise. I got to know all the guys over at Star Trek, because so I'm a little bit of a sci-fi geek, and I got to know some of the Star Trek people, and I'd go over there, at the end, they were at Paramount, which was where Frazier was, and at the end of the day in Fraser I'd walk over to the Star Trek Enterprise offices and sit around with those writers and pitch stuff for a little while, um. And so I did a show called Threshold, which was on CBS, and then and then I I don't know exactly how Jericho happened, but it was a chance to do something a little different. And comedy waned a little bit right around that time, and a lot of comedy writers were going to to dramas. Steve Sutton, who had been at Cheers, by that time he was doing Boston Legal, I think. Um, and so and some of us could make the transition, and it was harder for other writers like. If you're a comedy writer and you're good you know with the comedy, but you're also good with story and character motivation and structure and, and you know you know that that kind of thing, then you're going to be fine in drama because it follows they follow all the same dramatic rules of narrative. but if you're one of those comedy writers who's great at jokes but you suck at character development and you suck at you know emotions and 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 you know, dramatic through lines and stuff like that, then you're going to die at a drama because you're going to be sitting there pitching jokes that no one can use and that's all you can do. But uh, I was lucky to have good story training from shows like New Art and Cheers and Frasier. And so by the time I went to Jericho, I could I could help story-wise. I, I don't think it was like really where my home is, you know, uh, drama, but it was nice to know that I could kind of pull it off a little bit.
1: Now, what's the difference of the feel of the writing room between a drama and a sitcom? Uh,
0: well, in... In the drama room, it, it can still be fun and funny, but it doesn't seem like everyone's life goal to top everyone else's joke all the time. <laughs> so um, uh, it was actually a little easier in some ways that way. Um, still, you get into your arguments about the story, and I, it, it was actually very similar in some ways. And I, I met—I met some wonderful people over at Jericho. People, I, I people now that I'm thinking of it, who I should give a call to. It's been a long time, but. Um, it, it really wasn't that different. You see, at the end of the day, you want to tell a story. And if that's comedy, and if that's drama, and if that's sci-fi, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're telling a story. If you're leaning on the comedy, fine. If you're leaning on the sci-fi, that's fine. If you're leaning on the little character moments, also fine. You want to tell a story. And you are a bunch of people in a room with that goal of telling a story. And so, no matter what the genre is, a lot of your day is kind of shaped the same.
1: Now, if you leave Jericho... Do you decide when you would leave that to just go back into the comedy world, or did you play your cards? What were, you, what were you feeling?
0: I was a little up in the air. I was kind of willing to do kind of, you know, whatever would come along would be kind of interesting, and I got an offer to do a show called Back to You, which was created by Chris Lloyd and Steve Levitan. It had Kelsey Grammer in it. And I I knew those guys. I knew Chris, and I knew a couple of the other writers on the show, and uh, I thought, well, this, this might be... This might be, you know, a fun place to hang my hat for a while. And I went over there. The show came and went. It was an okay show, and it came and went. Uh, But that show led directly to Modern Family because uh, Chris and Steve then created Modern Family and even used one of the actors, Ty Burrell, who plays Phil on the show, uh, who had been in Back to You. So if Back to You hadn't been canceled, there wouldn't be a a Modern Family. Uh, And in between those two shows, I worked on a show called Better Off Ted. So I, I was just, at that point, I was just kind of bouncing from show to show. And that's, you know, I, in a long career, you're lucky if you can just bounce from show to show. So I did that for a while. But there were different kinds of shows and different kinds of experiences, and I think it all helped. I think I think it helped because uh, um, because I think if I was only writing comedy all the time, all about comedy, 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 it gets a little... Uh, it feels a little narrow, but if I'm doing other kinds of writing and I'm reading other kinds of things and watching other kinds of stuff, then that all sort of filters through my head as I'm writing a comedy. So sometimes when I'm writing something, uh, a sitcom script, I will think of a technique that was used in a Japanese drama or, or on a sci-fi show. And I'll say, oh, what if I use that in a comedy kind of way? And it makes the comedy a little richer. I'm not just repeating comedy I watched when I was a kid you know, when sitcoms run, you know, and, and so I always encourage comedy writers to absorb everything, and then when they funnel it through their, you know, comedy funnel or whatever, do we have comedy funnels? Um, that, uh, that you know, it, it's just a little richer for having done that.
1: Now, Modern Family comes along, and once again, it's a different writing style, because the show is different than other shows. Was that easier to, yeah. to acclimate to because, once again, you said you had story and character development and you actually did both you you know you with the modern family you don't have to depend on the laugh as much
0: right well that's true because it's not in front of a studio audience and so uh you can do smaller jokes if you have a studio audience your jokes have to be big enough to make a room full of people laugh or it looks like the joke bombed but if you do a show without a studio audience then you can do jokes that are little and jokes that are big and you can mix them all up and you just keep it moving and it's going to be fine uh what was great about modern family it it taught us all economy because that's a show with like 11 or 12 characters on it and you're telling three stories a week and you've got 20 minutes to tell the story you learn what words don't need to be used now you do that anyway with sitcoms all about paring it down to what's necessary because you only have so much time to tell a story um but with all these characters all these stories you are cutting syllables here and there, you know, if there is something you don't need, you it is gone, you know, or if you, if you have a little tangent that you want the characters to go on, you better find a way to rip something else out of the script in order to make room for that, not a lot of breathing room on Modern Family, uh, we were helped by the fact that it's a mockumentary, so they were able to talk to the camera, and that would save us lots of page space, because rather than have characters talk about a party that's going to happen on Saturday night, you would just cut to Claire on the couch saying, well, there's a party on Saturday night, and we blah, 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 blah. Good. Now we're in, and we can do the story, and that takes us one paragraph as opposed to a page of dialogue that's supposed to sound natural, where they're just setting up the story. So that helped. But um, economy was what really what we learned on that show.
1: Well, now the show becomes a hit,
0: and you start winning Emmys.
1: What was that like when you just when you were probably the favorites to win the Emmys when you did it, or were you the dark horse? Do you know in the beginning?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I well, did. I had never been on a hit show that was a hit right from the beginning. I, I joined Cheers after it had become what it was, and I joined Frasier well into the run. This was the first time I'd been on a show that was just out of the gate. In fact, Cheers and Frasier, Cheers wasn't a hit at all, out of the gate. This was like a phenomenon for a while. I mean, it was, like, it was, like, it was a little bit like Friends was at the beginning. Um, you could, uh, when Modern Family came along, and they were on every magazine cover, and it was just, it was the flavor of that moment. And so we were in the eye of this hurricane, and it was incredible. And uh, when we went to the Emmys, we thought it was between us and Glee was the other show that was big at that moment. And uh, and I was very pleased. That Ted Danson, uh, of all people, uh, actually announced our category. And so the last time I had won an Emmy, it had been with Ted on stage, and here he was giving me another one for twenty years later. Uh, so that was a that was a nice moment, and uh, we were all thrilled. We were like we were on this crazy ride at those first five years, and. Uh, Oh yeah, we were just the, the, the we were the the it girl for a
1: little while. It was it was nice. Now, how was it writing for Ed O'Neill? Because I mean, he had he had an iconic character in in Married with Children, but Al Bundy was different than his character here. But his timing, you know, Married with Children was sort of over the top, but his timing was on. Does that make it easier for you as a writer? Because one. People know that his time is good, but two, also, it might make it harder because people might still think of him as Al Bundy. Well, what's uh, great about
0: Ed is that, I mean, some some actors are really good at doing one thing, and then they find their perfect role, and then they basically repeat that role for the rest of their lives, okay? And, um, you know, uh, Ed besides doing Al Bundy, he'd done some movies, he'd done some other TV stuff and you could see that he was a good actor who wasn't just he wasn't just an actor who was good at being Al Bundy, you know that he was a good actor. And so he came in and he gave it a weight and an energy and this curmudgeonliness and it's a, a whole different and much more grounded character than Al Bundy. and I, I, by the way, he was great in married the children. but he's the kind of actor that could be great doing a bunch of different kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, fortunately for us, he didn't just come in and, you know, repeat. He didn't just try to be Al Bundy. He, he was this other guy, and he had the chops to do it. And so we were lucky to get him. I mean, the, I, the casting on that show is just a miracle, really. I mean, so many things could have gone wrong.
1: Well, yeah, it's funny. I remember when we were about Ed O'Neill, I remember i have been watching old episodes of Miami Vice, and he's the one where he just plays a jerk, and he's good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys... Yeah, he's... he's you guys start winning the Emmys and I Emmy mean, now. Now, does it get a little bit tiresome when you when you sit there and you go to the Emmys and you're like, hey, I think we're going to win? Or, or are you still did you still have that energy every time you do because it it's just a great accomplishment?
0: Um, well, I tell you what, it's, it gets tiresome for everyone else, uh, and I I, I know this from like somebody who was at Frasier during the, fr- the Frasier won Emmys its first five years for best sitcom, uh, which is exactly tied with Modern Family. And in that fifth year when Frazier was announced, people who were there uh, on the writing staff and Frasier told me, you could hear a couple of groans in the audience like, oh, this again. <laughs> and I, I suspect that it was probably the same when, when Modern Family won its fifth Emmy. Um, but I, we were never confident. I, I mean, so, I'll you, I can't speak for everybody. I was never confident. I know some of the other writers weren't confident. One or two of them kind of walked around thinking, oh yeah, we got this. And I was always amazed at those people. I was like, what? Um, but we were by and large we were not ever sure that was going to happen you know and and um i think that's good i think that's actually good i think it's good for us as writers not to be so complacent that we assume we're just going to win an emmy every time we put pen to paper you know uh but uh i was i was happily surprised every time
1: now where do you keep your emmys because there's six of them
0: uh yeah um I wish I had a fun joke answer for that on my dashboard. No, uh, they're in uh, – I, I, I live in Los Angeles, but I also live in Ohio more and more. And I have a place where I grew up, and I, I do love the area. And so I have a condo in a, in Lakewood, Ohio. And, uh, you know, I've I won Emmys and a bunch of other things. I'm not going to go into blah, blah, blah. And uh, the Emmys were always out, but all the other sort of trophies were all like in a cabinet because I didn't want them all out over the place. Because one, it looked like a little bit of a shrine to myself, and two, I just thought I, I don't want to, I don't want to get smug, you know. So, um, but I moved a lot of stuff into this condo in, in Ohio, and I thought, well, you know what? I-, I did all the, I went to Los Angeles, I did all this work. I'm going to put them up. So I do have one room in this place in Ohio where I- I've got all the trophies and the show memorabilia and stuff like that, um, and that's there. And so I see that when I'm in Ohio, but I don't have that out here.
1: Now, you left Modern Family because you were to by another network, or how was that, and was it hard to leave?
0: Um, you know, it was about time for me to leave. i have been there five years, and um, I, I was starting to repeat myself, I know, creatively. I think I was starting to <laughs> write things I felt like I'd written before. And uh, also, I, you know, there was, and I got an offer to, to work at CBS for a nice, nice raise and I thought oh that might be fun to try something different yeah I felt like I said what I had to say and and it was time to make room for somebody else who had new ideas and keep that keep that show's blood alive and um so I'm still good friends with with everyone who was there at least I I would like to think so maybe there's somebody doing a podcast right now saying the opposite but uh I but I I love them um but uh yeah, so I, so I went away and uh, did some other stuff for a while and bounced around and here we are today.
1: Now, when you said, you know, you got a raise from CBS, was it to develop shows or were you coming straight onto a show? Or what happens and how does that uh, both, both. It was a
0: deal that encompassed both. So I helped out on the, the Matthew Perry reboot of The Odd Couple and I helped out on a show called Superior Donuts and meanwhile, I did a couple pilots for them and uh, I did a few pilots for them. There was one I just thought, oh, this is really going to go. This is good. And... Uh, and everyone at the network just loved it. It was, uh, it, it, I, and I rarely say, hey, I did this great piece of work, but this isn't even fully created. But it was, it was really well done, and everyone at CBS loved it, and then Kevin James called CBS and said, I want to do another sitcom, and then I was gone, because they had to make room for that. So uh, they, basically, that's the story. Um, but, um, so I was there at CBS for
1: four years, and then it was, uh, it was time to say goodbye. So, you know, you've also written two books. What made you decide to write books? Oh, well, um, the first
0: one was a, a textbook about comedy theory, and that had been kind of swimming in my head. But actually, that, that book to me is like full circle of my life because when I was eight I wanted to know what was funny and why people laughed at this and how could I do it and all that other stuff. And, and then I got older and I started doing it. I learned and I learned and I learned and I observed and I observed and I tinkered and I experimented, I'm very analytical. And, um, and I had years and years of TV shows and studio audiences and rewrites and changes And I learned a lot. And then I, I met some people who were in academia who were, uh, introduced me to the study of comedy theory. And every time I would look at a study someone done, had done I would go, "Well, this doesn't make sense because they're saying they're assuming that all comedy is blah." But yeah, I can show you an example. And, and then at one point I thought, "Well, why am I, if I I'm, I'm putting everyone down who wants to study this? But if if someone asked me, how would I how would I kind of define?" comedy and comedy theory and what what makes something funny versus not funny what would i do and i started kind of sketching out a couple of thoughts about what that would look like to me and then over the next eight years i became deep i got deeper and deeper into it it took me eight years to kind of write what i consider a full book about it and I, I i go back and do a second edition now i think i over explained some things and under explained others but I, I got it basically i think and created kind of a landscape of 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 how humor works in the human mind and um and it's very thorough and it's uh, i think an approach no one else has done and um I'm quite, and you know that's one thing i might do when i'm done with all this writing is go back and teach comedy theory i, I would actually teach like a two semester thing like comedy theory and then like applied comedy so understanding the nature of how
1: comedy works and then how to create comedy so i would do sort of a two-pronged thing i think Now your other book, Adventures of Mrs. Jesus Where where did that come from And were you happy when you finished writing it?
0: (laughs) That came from a nervous breakdown I was having While I was on Modern Family um i was my marriage was falling apart and i was miserable and uh i was taking antidepressants and and so my brain was starting to get a little fuzzy and god bless those people on modern family my my the other writers because they could see that i was kind of lagging and they kind of picked up the slack for me a little bit and were all supportive of me and it's it's, it's that thing i told you you get really close to your writers and um and uh i one day i drew this picture on the back of my uh my script and it was uh, forgive me out there, it was Jesus on a cross and uh, there's a woman standing at the base of the cross and she says to him, are you even going to ask me about my day? And I called <laughs> it The Adventures of Mrs. Jesus and uh, we all kind of laughed at it and that night I thought, well I'm going to put this on Facebook uh, but I didn't feel like drawing it again so I, I just I just clipped out some, some images from, from some old Renaissance paintings and I put a word balloon in it and put it out there and half the people loved it and half the people hated it and I did it the next night i did another one and another one and then and it, it it grew and my mom unfriended me on facebook which was the second saddest thing after the fact that she had actually been my facebook friend and i uh, i um and, and as I did it, you know, the character started to flesh out a little to me, and, and I started coming up with themes that would run through, and uh, I deepened it, and I came up with the rules for it, like, oh, Jesus, can only speak in this font, and if I need this character, this will be how this character presented, blah, blah. And then I learned a little more about cinematography, because it's like, at what point in the frame do you go close up? Even though I was using the same clip art over and over and over, psychologically, sometimes you want to get in for a close-up, you know, and I have one character who's on a cross, so he's twice as high as everyone else, so how do I keep fitting them in the frame together, and way that's satisfying so it was a very interesting experiment for me um and after about 100 episodes 100 episodes 100 God, 100 uh cartoons because um, i was doing like every day for a while and uh harper collins said uh, some, I, I one of my agents had gotten it over to harper collins he said if you do 50 more that have not been on the internet we'll make it a book so that gave me a chance to round it out i came up with basically a finale for it, and I figured out what all the where I wanted to get to and what I wanted to say with it, and where to come to at the end is actually very surprising, considering where it all started. But um, but then I was done with that, and that was out. And the funnest part to me about the Adventures of Mrs. Jesus, I haven't gone back and looked at it actually, is reading the reviews on Amazon. Because <laughs> if you want, oh my God read the reviews on Amazon, because what'll happen is there'll be like a group of Christians, somebody will find it, and then they get everyone in the group to write a slam on Amazon, and so they all sound vaguely the same, but you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of the same stuff over, you're a coward, and I dare you to write a book about Mrs. Mohammed, and I'm like, first of all, I don't know anything about Mohammed, second of all, I think <laughs> it would kill me if I did that, so yeah, yeah, I'm a coward, I want to die, you know, um, uh, and you're going to go to hell. All these Christians saying the worst things about me, by the way. I'm stuff you should never say about another human being. But it goes on. It's relentless, but hilarious. I love it.
1: Now, also, you've, you've had such a great career, but you've also been uh, nominated for a, an Academy Award. You've done two animated shorts. Two animated you get, shorts. How right. did you get into that? Was that something that, you know, because you said when you were a kid you used to watch a lot of cartoons and read books and comic strips. Did that put a subliminally in your mind that you would one day do that?
0: Uh, you know, yeah, I would say absolutely. I, I also drew a lot for a while in my life. I wanted to be a cartoonist, uh, um, but uh, I um, the first time I was at Disney it was right after I done Cheers, and I was at Disney for a little while, I a little deal there. And uh, their animation department wanted to do a series of direct-to-home video uh, cartoons that were like, you know, funny versions of fairy tales. And they had a list of fairy tales, and they decided to go outside their usual writers and, and approach other people. And I and they went to me, and they said, you know, you do TV sitcoms, but would you consider doing one of these things? And I saw that Red Riding Hood was on the list, and I thought, oh, well, if I come up with a, a version that never I've never seen before, then I would totally do that. Because I, a lot of old classic cartoons, Bugs Bunny and whatnot, and Tex Avery, the director, did, did great uh, Red Riding Hood versions. And then I, in my car, one popped into my head, uh, fully formed. And I went back to them. And I said, what about this? And they liked it, and I wrote it out. And then we had a great director named Steve Moore, and he put this whole thing together. And, and it got shown in some festivals. And then instead of going direct-to-home video, you know, got nominated for an Oscar. We did not win, but we were nominated. And uh, so I got to go to the Oscars. That was fun. And... Um, and the, the weird thing is the cartoon's never been released so it's not out there I think I think Steve Moore put it on his website so if you google Redux Riding Hood you can find it uh, so that's out there and then the other cartoon I did was a story that I thought of uh, a few years later uh, for an animated short and I started to draw it as maybe a kid's book and then I met Bill Plimpton and uh, the Terrific, famous uh, cartoonist, uh, animator, uh, animation director, and I said I've got this cartoon. He said I never do other people's ideas, and I ran the idea by him some thoughts, and I also said I'd pay for it. And suddenly he was interested, and so I produced this cartoon that he did, and uh, based on some of my drawings, and he did an amazing job on it, and it got a lot of uh, it got an Annie Award for the best uh, animated short that year, and it made the Oscar shortlist. And then this very strange thing happened. I went to the screening for the Oscar shorts, uh, for the shortlist, from which they would window down all the nominees. And my cartoon comes up, and it's all out of focus. And half the information is off screen, so no one can see it. And I go running back. It turns out that Bill <laughs> had written the wrong aspect ratio on the box. And it was. Two, and that's the cartoon everyone saw, and we did not make the uh, final <laughs> final <Yes>. cut. Um, <laughs> that was a heartbreaker. But it was a big cartoon. So look up The Fan and the Flower, people. It's a good cartoon. It's on the internet somewhere.
1: Now, what are you doing now? Uh, I'm working on a show called The Orville, uh, Seth MacFarlane's show. It's a great
0: show. Science fiction show with comedy, yeah. And uh, so I'm doing that. In fact, I have to go into work today. But uh, I'm I'm new on that show. It's been on for two years and I'm a fan. Uh, I I feel like it took a huge leap in the second season and just got from just being a decent show to being like a, a really great show. And I'm lucky enough to know some of the writers who were kind enough to invite me to come and join them. And so I'm on the show this season, and um, and that's that's uh, what I'm working on now. And I think I think this might I think this might be it for me. I think I think after 35 years I might be about done writing fade in and then characters doing things and then fade out. I think I'm fading out, so it might be time to do something else.
1: Now, how are you adjusting to when you go back to Ohio? Because I was in LA for 18 years and I moved back to where I grew up in outside Philadelphia, and I. It's a lot, you, you you notice how there's some really crappy things in L.A., like the traffic and all that stuff. How are you adjusting? Because, I mean, I live in a pretty big town, but Painesville is small. I mean, how are you adjusting?
0: Yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'm in Lakewood, which is about 40 miles from Painesville, but still, it's still a small town. And um, uh, it's interesting, I, I love that nobody there has an agent. Uh <laughs> And uh, that that nobody is poring over ratings or opening box office figures. Uh, it's it's um, <laughs> come to think that nobody here has an agent because all the writers fired their agents. But um, <laughs> we um, it's it's nice to not have to think. You know, it's the first time in my life I haven't felt like I have a paper due. That was always my least favorite feeling about high school was that you know if you have a paper due. And I would sort of not do it, but I would not enjoy my time putting it off because I knew it was due, and it was always hanging over my head. And so when I was finally out of school, I became a writer, and now that's for the last 35 years, I've always had a paper due. And it's not just a teacher grading it, but it's like producers and actors and you know, network and uh, studio, and it's it's a lot of pressure to always have a paper due. So I took a year off uh, recently, and I was in Cleveland for the whole year, and I never had a paper due the whole time I was there, and that felt great. I... I... I Enjoyed not having to do that, but I didn't exactly find anything there that I wanted to latch on to as sort of the next chapter of life either. So I'm still a little bit up in the air about what I'll do. Probably, possibly teach, but um, I'm still still looking.
1: Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today. Uh, are, now, are you are you on Twitter?
0: Uh, no, no, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook, Kay. so you can find me on those things. Okay,
1: well, people, go check them out. Check out Dan O'Shannon. Go to IMDb, and you'll look at his credits and go, oh, my God. So go check it out. No, it's true. (laughs) It's just they're amazing, the shows you worked on. So, people, check out Dan. People, go to my website, coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter at coopertalk. Follow me on Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.